Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Moving in to chapter 4 of First Peter, a little preface here. Psychologists tell us people want to be known. People want to be known for their work as an actor, a singer, or other want to be known as a culinary artist. Others just want to be known. Some people take the need to be known to the extreme. A Jamaican man set a distance record of 23.11 miles in just over 12 hours on June the 22nd 1997 on a pogo stick. <laughs> on a pogo stick. He also holds the Guinness World Record for brick carrying and underwater rope jumping. Can you imagine that? Underwater rope jumping. Robin Joe from California made the world's largest skateboard. Uh, in comparison, the Chevrolet Suburban is about 19 feet long. This skateboard was 36 feet long. Eric from Sweden was able to keep nine yo-yos spinning at once. And Nick, yeah, I know who, right? And Nick from New York drank 46 bottles of ketchup at a local community college while friends watched. He calls himself the human ketchup drinking machine. How others look at us and perceive us is a powerful motivator. For example, I don't wear certain clothes that I have at home to church because I want you to think that I'm fashionable. <laughs> Most of us are powerfully motivated by ensuring others will be like us. And today, I want to talk about with you how you're known and the pleasure that we find by being known. We find great pleasure by going with the flow, so to speak. We find great pleasure by not standing out in the crowd. Yet I contend that the greatest pleasure is not found in what others think of us, but we find the greatest joy, our greatest pleasure in God himself. So be resolved to find your greatest pleasure in Jesus Christ. Despite opposition, for you will give an account for your life. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, 
but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter explained, as we mentioned last week, in the last part of chapter 3, that suffering is not a sign of weakness. Suffering is not a sign of weakness. It is instead Christ's pathway to winning through his suffering. So we must talk about these three points this morning. And first, we must be resolved. We must be resolved. Peter points out to us in verse 2 that we have a choice. We have a choice. We can live for God's will or for human passions. Living for human passions today is respectively called hedonism. It's the idea that only pain or pleasure motivates a person. And now I know you've heard of maybe the vacation club, and they call this the sandbox of your inner child. Sounds to me they're covering, they're covering up the real meaning of why they're going there. They're escaping something, right? They're escaping. It's the idea that only pain and pleasure motivates us. Instead, we instinctively must live to please ourselves. That's what they're saying. We must do what we want to do because we want to do it. This isn't all bad, as God has hardwired us to be individuals to live for pleasure. But he wants us to pause and consider what real pleasure is and the source of where real pleasure comes from. Peter again tells us that we have a choice. To live for God and endure suffering during this lifetime to enjoy the greatest pleasures in the next life. Or follow our hedonistic pleasures where the blueprint is to eliminate suffering from our world here. We have a choice. We can choose to endure the work, the things that we've been called to do, or we can forsake that and do what we want to do. And we know where that gets us. But as much as we preach this and teach this to individuals who do not know Christ, they still choose to go with the latter. Most of you think of pleasure as enjoying a, a cup of coffee in the morning. Women may think of the company of an intelligent, witty, and handsome man when you find him. Let me know, ladies. Yeah? Looking good, Joe. Okay. 
teenagers may think um, that when their name is called out before everyone else for a maybe a sporting event, something that they've achieved, they think, man, that's the highest honor. That's, that's what gets me, right? Peter says, the pursuit of pleasure is not wrong. But he does say that it is too weak. It is too weak. Listen to what Blas Pascal has said. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different ways they try it, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. It is the same desire in both. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Nowhere in the Bible does God condemn people for longing to be happy. People are condemned for forsaking God and seeking their happiness other than in God. Jeremiah 2, 13. God does not condemn happiness despite what the secular world tells you. That unless you're happy and you're not suffering, you're not doing it right. You're not living up to the world's expectation. But God has a different view and a different expectation for us. Does he not? The Bible actually commands us to delight in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4. Jesus teaches us to love God more than money because our heart is where our treasure is. Matthew 6, 21. Paul wants us to believe that gaining Christ is worth the loss of everything else. It is worth losing everything else to know and to love Christ. And the author of Hebrews exhorts us to endure suffering like Jesus for the joy set before us. Hebrews chapter 12. So you have a choice in front of you. Should I pursue the short-term pleasure described in verse 4? Or should I pursue an eternal pleasure by pursuing God? The question is answered by when you determine which is the greatest pleasure. The early Christians that read this letter answered the question. They stiff-armed the passions for the ultimate pleasure found in God. They abstained from popular forms of entertainment, whether it was the Roman theater, uh, the risque performances, the chariot races, the, the gladiator fights with their blood and gore. No matter, the early Christians were resolved. They refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor, which was a gesture of civic gratitude towards that emperor. Kind of like how we pledge allegiance to the flag in our country. And for this, 
as you have probably noticed, they were hated for it. Some of us are hated for the fact that we love our country, that we love our Lord. This is no different than the time during the Roman times. So if you wish to join these early Christians by pursuing the greatest pleasure, then Peter has solid words here of counsel for you. He lays it out for us. He tells us that to pursue the ultimate pleasure in God, you must expect to suffer in this life. I'll say it again. If you are not suffering in your kingdom life right now, we're not doing it correctly. We're not doing it correctly. Why do bad things happen to good people? We hear that all the time. Why do these things happen? Oh, because I did this and this is God's punishment on me. No. It is not God's punishment on you. It is God giving you an opportunity to let him shine. It is God's way of saying, even through your tragedy, even through your struggle, through your strife, I can be the king. I can show my power. I can use you to exemplify my will. And that's what God does. He exhorts us to endure suffering like Jesus did. Again, if you choose to join the early Christians by experiencing that greatest pleasure, Peter lays it out for you again. You must expect to suffer in this life because Christ suffered in the flesh. Anyone who follows Jesus Christ should expect to suffer as well. To say someone suffered in the flesh is an odd expression. But even a quick read of Peter's letter shows the word suffer is one of his favorite words. He uses it quite a bit. It is one of his favorite words. Peter has spoken about Christ's suffering over and over in this letter. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The word arm in verse 1 is widely used in the time of the New Testament. In places, the word describes arming yourselves for battle. For battle, whether that means grabbing a sword for protection, equipping one's chariot prior to battle, or taking a weapon to go on the offensive. It can also be used to describe the preparation necessary before setting off to sea, such as preparing the ship's tackling like a soldier. Christ followers are commanded to prepare themselves for suffering. And what are we to arm ourselves with? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased 
from sin. If we are not struggling in this life, we're not doing it correctly. That's what he's saying. If we have not armed ourselves with the knowledge and the fact that he wants us to suffer, not for suffering's sake, but for Christ's sake, for God's vision for us as Christians is to suffer in this flesh. Why? Why not make it a little easier, God? Why not make this a um, make this appealing to those who do not know you, so that they would come to know you? God lays out His purpose here. The point of that He's trying to make: being born in the likeness of men. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus' ultimate suffering was the cross. Jesus didn't enter the cross as an accident, swept up because of events out of his control. No. We learn no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus chose suffering. Jesus chose suffering as his vocation and he calls on us to take up our cross To follow him. So we are to copy the mindset of Christ. We are to copy the mindset of Christ. In his book, 100 Prison Meditations, Richard Wormerbrand, who spent 14 years in prison as a Romanian pastor. Have you heard of this man? He spent 14 years in prison. He wrote this. I have accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross-bearers. It is this conscious of a high calling and of partnership with Jesus, which brings gladness and tribulations. Did you hear that? Happiness in suffering, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. Why do so many people reject God? Why do so many people reject Christ? Because they're too caught up in the world. They're too caught up in what's going to please them today. They're too caught up in what the world says they ought to be. Instead of reading this letter and knowing that when I go through a trial and tribulation, I can thank God because I know he's using that for a purpose. And not my purpose his purpose. Christ saw pain as an opportunity for greater pleasure. Christ saw enduring pain for doing what is right as a door for his greatest delight. God himself. We are to arm ourselves with this same mindset. Suffering today is painful. We don't lie about that. Suffering today is painful. Yet if I suffer for doing what is right, 
This will only lead to greater joy when I am with my heavenly Father. Don't miss that. This mindset is an important piece. My grandfather would teach me a lesson about being prepared when I was a young man. He was a um, veteran, and he would tell the story about being with another individual who we went through the Navy with. And he talked about a story that was told to him, and he told this to me. He talked about a man who was in a foxhole fighting during the Vietnam War. And the guy in the foxhole with another individual asked if he had any ammunition for his gun, as he had none. And as my grandfather told me, you need to be prepared. You have to be prepared to have enough for yourself and to have enough for your neighbor. To be prepared. Peter is telling you something very similar here. Arm yourself with this mindset now before suffering comes. You will not be taken off guard when that suffering comes. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter's point is not that by suffering from doing what is right, we can achieve sinlessness. Peter's point here is that we have to endure the mockery and the scorn. We have refused to go along with the crowd in their sinful ways. We have decisively broken from the old sinful patterns of the way we used to live. That's how we remain resolved. We must remain resolved. But we also need to be resolved despite opposition. You will come across opposition. The Pacific Campaign of the Second World War has fascinated a lot of individuals. In many ways, it seemed like a nonsensical series of battles between the United States and Japan. As the Americans sought to curtail Japanese aggression in the east, they fought their way across the Pacific Ocean, moving slowly and deliberately from island to island. Tiny, seemingly insignificant pieces of rock jutting from the midst of the ocean, hundreds of miles from the nearest mainland, becoming fierce battlegrounds in which a lot of these things took place. Most of the stories we know nothing about, only those who actually partook in those events. Insignificant to us. But they became fierce battlegrounds For example, Wake Island is only 12 square miles. And by comparison, Cuba is 40,000 square miles. It has no place for farmland and only has 12 miles of coastland. Yet, as many as 1,000 Japanese lost their lives attempting to wrestle this small island away from the United States during World War II. These islands were far more important than their size may have indicated, for they were able to serve as air bases from which strikes could be launched against other islands, and eventually against Japan itself. 
The insignificant islands were crucial stepping stones across the vast Pacific Ocean. And I tell you this story to tell you this. Little things lead to big things. Little things lead to big things. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The opposition Peter has in mind is the mocking and the slandering done to Christians. Because you will not join in or you know, be a part of that fun-loving living and <laughs> the fact that you're not living a moral life. This is what they want for us. They have no moral restraints. We are aligned. Mockery and shame, as you know, are very powerful tools. Mockery and shame are very powerful tools. Those of you who have good memories may remember that I told a story a while back in a sermon about a, um, a man named Jeff Lassiter. And he was 14 when he took his own life. A student in Los Angeles, um, he had been the target of an incident, an incident where children threw chili on him, hot chili. And while they did that, others pulled his pants down. And it was reported that the young man was the target of other students bullying and teasing since he was in middle school. And all of this reached a tipping point on October 20th, 2008. And other students, as they scurried to class, Lassiter went to the school's restroom, pulled out a handgun in order to take his life. And at six foot six, 275 pounds, he had begun to perform well in football. He was highly regarded in what he was doing. But nevertheless, his passive nature and his large size was a continual target for other kids. And in the end, it was just too much for him. How others perceive us is a very powerful tool. It's a very powerful motivator to all that we do. In verse 3, you see people living life with no seatbelts. You see people jumping from the bridge with no bungee cords, jumping from planes with no parachutes. Why? Oh, because it's more fun that way. It's more daring, right? I can tell you from experience, I've jumped from a plane 14 times. I made sure I had a parachute on my back. I didn't think it would be more fun to jump without that parachute. In fact, I didn't find it fun at first at all. I'm what you would say I'm afraid of heights, but really I'm afraid of falling. And that's the truth. Those of you who have the fear of heights, you don't really have the fear of height. You have the fear of falling. But that kind of changed when I kept doing this activity. 
But that seems about another lifetime ago. Well, that's what it's describing. Because sin itself is fun for a limited time. Because you don't do it because you want to do it. You do it a lot of times because others are doing it. And you don't want to be isolated. You don't want to be mocked or maligned. So you jump from that plane without a parachute, not thinking about the landing that's going to occur in just a few moments. You forget that little things lead to big things. And this is as true in warfare as it is in the hearts of men and women. Every sin, whether large or small, is a declaration of war against God. Every sin is a declaration of war against God. Adam and Eve did not commit adultery and they did not murder. They merely ate a piece of fruit that God told them not to eat. And while that sin may be small and insignificant to us, it is a sin that has made all the difference. I will tell you from experience. It was the topic that I studied for a good part of four years. It led to everything. I have been challenged in my life and in my Christian walk, my kingdom life, to guard against the small sins. Those sins that seem so small, so insignificant, because they often, often lead to others. They are but the beginnings of much greater sins. Each and every one, no matter how insignificant it may seem, it is a declaration of war against the Creator. And if I do not guard against these sins, soon island after island will be conquered and only the mainland will remain. But it will be weak and it will be unprotected. But thanks be to God that he provides the strength and that he provides the power to reconquer and reclaim islands that have already fallen to the enemy. Amen. Hope is not lost. He has won battles, but by the grace of God, he will be pushed back further and further from the mainland, and he will not win the war. Satan will not win the war. And that is the prevailing attitude that we must have. We win. God wins. Can we approach life that way? Can we approach relationships that way? Crew chief Tim Shutt, and you may not know this individual, those who know NASCAR might know him, but he knew going into a race, and he was a crew chief, so he oversaw the makeup of the car, the parts, everything to make it run the way that it should. But he knew that there was a small adjust, adjustment that he could make to make a big difference to win a race. And he knew it was against NASCAR rules, but almost everyone else was doing it. So he crawled under the number 20 car of Mike McLaughlin, who races on the NASCAR Bush Series. And you might know this individual. He, the owner, Joe Gibbs, 
was very adamant that his team did not cheat. And so Shut, a relatively new believer who encountered Christ at a Christian retreat for participants in the racing industry, said that most teams figure that as long as you get away with it, it's not cheating. So he said to Mike in practice, I'll put this piece, the illegal piece, on if practice does not go well. So Shut said he got underneath that car and he got halfway through putting it on and the verse, seek ye first the kingdom of God came flashing in red (laughs) boldness in his mind. He didn't put the piece on the car. Still, McLaughlin won that race and it was one of the bigger races of the year, Talladega. This was back in 2001. He won the race in spite of not having that upgrade. And he says, when we won, the first thing that came to my mind was that verse, God wanted to show himself to me. Opposition will come. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, Matthew 13, 21, opposition will come. Jesus said opposition comes because the word is in you and the word causes conflict in your life. If you are a new believer, one of the struggles you face is facing temptations from your unbelieving friends. Just like this young man in the NASCAR race team. You will face opposition. Yet God tells us to be resolved. Be resolved. Today, Department stores do not sell clothes. They sell fashions. The very name shows us how short-lived particular styles of clothing are. We do not want to be seen not wearing the latest fashion. Don't worry. If you looked in my closet, you know that I'm definitely not up to fashion's sake. I think that's why God maybe called me to be a pastor. (laughs) So that I wear something decent. They don't sell clothes, they sell fashions. We don't want to look old-fashioned or odd. So when opposition to doing right comes, we bow like a reed in the wind. We We succumb to peer pressure. Peter tells us not to waffle and not to bend to pressure from others. When others mock, remember That you have sinned sufficiently. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. It goes on to say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We covered that back in chapter 1. A daughter complained to her father about how hard things were for her. And as soon as I solve one problem, she said, another one comes up, and I am just tired of struggling. Her father, a chef, took her to the kitchen where he filled three pots with water and placed each on high fire. Soon the pots came to boil, and in one, he placed carrots. 
In the second, he placed eggs. And in the last, ground coffee beans. And he let them sit and boil without saying a word. The daughter impatiently waited, wondering what he was doing. And after a while, he went over and he turned off those burners. He fished out the carrots and placed them in a bowl. He pulled the eggs out and placed them in a bowl. And he poured the coffee also into another bowl. Turning to her, he asked, What do you see? Carrots, eggs, and coffee. He brought her closer and asked her to feel the carrots. She did and noted that they were soft. He then asked her to take an egg and break it. And after pulling off the shell, she observed the hard-boiled egg. Finally, he asked her to sip the coffee, and she smiled. And she tasted its rich flavor, and she asked, Well, what does this mean? He explained that each of them had faced the same adversity, the boiling water, but each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong, hard, and unrelenting. But after being subjected to the boiling water, it softened and became weak. The egg was fragile. Its thin outer shell had protected the liquid interior. But after sitting through that boiling water, its insides hardened. And the ground coffee beans were unique. However, by being in the boiling water, it changed that water. So Peter says, when you face the slander of others. Arm yourself with the mindset of Christ. Jesus knew what life was about because he had seen the other side of life before he came to Bethlehem. He had lived in heaven before coming to earth. He knew better to be a person who was satisfied with meals out of trash cans when a real banquet awaited for him later on. Don't succumb to the pressures of others who mock you. Instead, change the water around you. Remember that little things lead to big things, and soon all your chances of real joy are gone. Five of the six sins that Peter mentions in verse 3 are a self-destructive tendency that show a lack of self-control. There's no real pleasure in these. You you might find great pleasure in the wind through your hair, some of us. Maybe as you jump from that plane without a parachute, I don't know. But you have to remember this. You have to land. You have to land. Remember to be resolved despite opposition. Don't be duped. By thinking pleasure is found in jumping from planes and bridges without a parachute or a bungee cord. There is no lasting pleasure in this. You thirst for pleasure is not wrong. Just like Peter says, it's just too weak. It's too weak. Your desire for pleasure is not ultimately quenched in the pursuit of such pleasure. The sin... In verse 3, promises to quench your thirst. 
It quenches your thirst like seawater when you drink. You're only more thirsty. You seek the Lord more when you seek him out. It becomes a habit. It becomes your true pleasure. You're wondering what's going to happen next. How is God going to use me today? And you get excited about it and so you crave it. And you want it more and more. And so finally, we are to be resolved. And we are to be resolved because we're going to face opposition. But also be resolved because you will give an account of your life. You will give an account of your life. This life is not all there is. Life on earth is but a dress rehearsal for the real thing. You will spend far more time on the other side of death in eternity than you will be here. Earth, again, is that practice workout before the actual game. The warm-up lap before the race. You see, this life is preparation for the next. God warns us. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Probably one of the ways that the adversaries were maligning the Christians was by saying, Ha! You say that you have such good news. You say that you escape judgment. You say that God is great and saves you and gives you joy. Well, all we've got to say is you are missing a lot of parties and you die just like everybody else. So if you die and go to the worms, we also die and go to the worms. So they say, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, you need to remember Peter's words here in verse 5. All will give an account to God one day. And when we hand over our case to God like that, our judicial sentiment cries out for some assurance that justice will be done. That is what Peter is giving here in verse 5. They will give an account someday. Nothing will be swept under the rug. Nothing will be forgotten. And the judge will be God. And just as it is important for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews chapter 9. Our lives are different because we are faced with a temptation or a task. So we must ask ourselves this. How will it affect my eternity and the eternity of others? Your actions affect others. How we live affects others. In the movie Casualties of War, Michael J. Fox plays Private Erickson, a soldier in Vietnam who is part of a squad that abducts a girl and they do horrible things to her. He didn't participate in the crime, but afterward he struggles with what has happened. And he says to the other men in his squad, just because each of us might at any second be blown away, we're acting like we can do anything we want, as though it doesn't matter what we do. 
I'm thinking it's just the opposite. Because we might be dead in the next split second. Maybe we got to be extra careful what we do. Because maybe it matters more. Maybe it matters more than we ever know. Some of you are familiar when you go to Colorado, you find a sign that marks the Continental Divide. On the right side of the sign was the word Pacific, and on the left side was the word Atlantic. And if you were to stand there watching rainwater fall, you would soon realize that two raindrops falling side by side could end up in completely different places and in different oceans. If one raindrop landed on the eastern side of the ridge, it would drain towards the east into streams and rivers, and it could take it eventually into the Gulf of Mexico and then on into the Atlantic. Yet, the other raindrop that fell just inches away on the western side had a different destiny. It would flow westward into streams and rivers that would eventually take it to the Pacific Ocean. Jesus Christ is like the continental divide. People can go through life side by side, but they can end up in totally opposite destinies determined by their response to Jesus Christ. So what is our response? How do we respond to God's word? How do we respond to his call? How do we allow God to permeate our lives even when the opposition tells us, you don't have to do that. Enjoy the pleasures of now. But as we suffer, and we suffer willingly for Christ, the rewards and the pleasures are so much greater on the other side. Amen? Amen. Dave, come and lead us in our benediction, please. Whatever we face, good and what we perceive to be bad, may we do this each and every day. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Heavenly Father, as we leave here this morning, I pray that you keep us mindful of that opposition, that you have placed us in places where we need your help, we need your guidance, we need to know that you're there. Lord, we thank you so much for all the blessings that you give us. We thank you for those opportunities. And Lord, we may not always rise to the occasion. But Lord, you love us anyway. You take care of those things. Lord, let us have the confidence and the mindset of your son, Jesus Christ. 
Let us live this life as if there's no other way. And we know that to be true. You've told us. But you promise us as we suffer in this life, greater riches are for those who seek me. Lord, we're desperately seeking you. We're seeking for ways to bring others to you. Lord, reveal to us how to do that. Bring us people who will be energized for the Lord to facilitate those things. Lord, in, in all that, and when that's all said and done, you will be praised. We will glorify you and you alone. Thank you for our time here this morning, and I pray as we leave that you would keep us safe, that you will be with us, you will protect us, but Lord, also to make us uncomfortable. And I know that's something you wouldn't normally pray for, but Lord, I pray for uncomfortableness, that you will use us even in the greatest of tragedies and also in the triumphs. Thank you for your provision. And all of God's people said, Amen. Have a great day. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.